Welcome to The Green Investor, powered by Investopedia. I'm Caleb Silver, the editor-in-chief of Investopedia and your guide and fellow traveler on our journey into what it means to be a green investor today and where this investing theme is headed in the future. On this week's episode, the planet is baking right now. Extreme heat and wildfires are raging throughout the U.S., Asia, and Europe, and government leaders are on the verge of declaring climate emergencies, hoping to use executive actions to lower emissions before it's too late. We'll get into where the danger zones are and what if anything, political leaders can do about it. And freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose, as Janice used to sing, but it's also an investing theme that has been catching on with index fund and ETF investors. Perth Toll, founder of the Life and Liberty Indexes, joins the show to talk about the connection between individual and political freedom and investment performance. It's the S of ESG, the social part, and it's more important now than ever. But first and always, this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. We will not make recommendations to buy, sell, or hold a particular security or asset, although we may discuss financial products with our guests. Some of our guests may invest in securities mentioned on this podcast. Some of our guests may sell or market securities mentioned on this podcast, but all listeners should do their own research or consult with their financial advisor or broker before making any investment decisions. By the time you're listening to this, both the UK and the US may very well have declared climate emergencies as heat waves and wildfires are wreaking deadly havoc on lives and property across both continents. Analysts estimate the economic damage to Europe alone will be at least half a point of gross domestic product as everything from energy and food production to tourism and everyday life has been greatly disrupted. Great Britain recorded its hottest ever day on July 19th with temperatures hitting a high of 40.3 degrees Celsius, that's 104.5 degrees Fahrenheit, in the east of England according to the country's Met Office. London's fire brigade declared a major incident after a huge surge in fires across the capital on Tuesday. Record high temperatures across China have turned deadly with reports of dozens of fatalities due to heat stroke, and Chinese officials have begun restricting power to factories to ensure sufficient supply for air conditioners. 76 weather stations in China reported record high temperatures last week that exceeded 42 degrees Celsius, that's 108 Fahrenheit, in some places. Here in the U.S., a heat wave moving its way across the country has already produced Salt Lake City's highest temperatures this past Sunday and could bring readings as high as 113 degrees in Texas and Oklahoma this week. About 40 million people are under heat alerts in the lower 48 states, according to the National Weather Service. So, what can political leaders do beyond declaring climate emergencies, and what does it mean if they do make those declarations? It's a complicated question, as you can imagine, particularly now, given the rampant inflation in the energy market. While oil prices have come down in recent weeks as global economies brace for a recession, energy demand will remain strong as air conditioners in cities around the world will be on full blast. In the U.S., the Biden administration, under an emergency declaration, could redirect federal funding to clean energy construction, it could steer aid to communities on the front lines of climate change, and even curb the export of fossil fuels behind global warming. The president, by executive order, can tap more than 100 special powers normally intended to address hurricanes, terrorist attacks, and other unforeseen events. For example, under the Stafford Disaster Relief and Emergency Assistance Act, the president could direct the Federal Emergency Management Agency to construct renewable energy products using federal money. He could also enact a national security exemption in a 2015 law that lifted a decades-long ban on most crude exports, reimposing licensing requirements and other restrictions to curtail overseas oil sales. The problem, of course, is that high oil and gas prices are putting pressure on the administration to permit more production, not less. Not to mention the fact that President Biden has been trying to push his Build Back Better plan through Congress 
which calls for more spending and investment in renewable energy, and it has faced staunch opposition from Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, among others. And many of the executive powers he might try to push through would also face challenges in the Supreme Court. In the UK, all three of the remaining candidates for prime minister and the leader of the ruling Tory party are backing away from the government's climate strategies in the face of higher costs. That said, the declaration of emergencies will force climate action back to the top of the minds of voters with midterm elections fast approaching here in the US. In short, executive orders from presidents and prime ministers make for good political theater, but producing real change takes the will of unified voters who are pushing for lasting change. And change is hard when all most people want is a powerful air conditioner to beat the heat. Let's do the news. Intense heat in Texas last week prompted power companies to ask residents to cut back their energy use and actually turn up the thermostats on their air conditioners to avoid blackouts as the state's power grid operators struggled to satisfy a surging demand for electricity. Texas state officials claim clean energy was a reason for the shortfall, prompting criticism from clean energy advocates who say the state is once again unfairly blaming renewables for its long-standing power problems. The Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT as it's known, which operates the state's power grid, urged residents and businesses to scale back their energy use last Monday and Wednesday, citing record high electric demand and attributing its inability to meet those needs in part to renewables underperforming because of slow winds and cloudy skies. It was the third time this year that ERCOT has asked its customers to cut back on electricity to avoid a grid collapse. Curbing methane releases will require a tenfold increase in spending to $110 billion a year to slow down climate change, according to a new study from the Climate Policy Initiative. Methane is responsible for nearly half of net global warming to date, yet just 2% of global climate finance is directed towards curbing releases of the gas, according to the report. The biggest opportunity to mitigate emissions are from oil, gas, and coal operations, and those cuts are crucial to maintaining a pathway to prevent global warming from surpassing 1.5 degrees Celsius. But just $100 million of the $11 billion currently directed towards abating methane goes to mitigating leaks and releases from the sector, according to the investment figures tracked by the CPI. Almost two-thirds goes towards the waste sector. Bloomberg Green is out with its list of the greenest electric vehicles, and it won't surprise you to know that five of the top ten come from Tesla, the world's largest maker of electric vehicles. But the top spot belongs to Lucid Motors and its Dream Edition range. That ranked highest for its range, which is 520 miles to the charge, its battery size, which is 118 kilowatt hours, and its charging speed, which comes in at 22 miles per minute. It's also the most expensive of the new fleet of EVs with a hefty price tag of $169,000. Tesla's Model 3 and Model S came in second and third, followed by the Chevy Volt and the Tesla Model Y. We'll link to Bloomberg's list of the top 10 in the show notes. We spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about the E of ESG, the environmental aspects of the ESG investing thing. Well, because we are green investors, but there's another E word that we need to consider as responsible and sustainable investors, and that's ethics. Ethical investing has been around for decades, but no one has brought it front and center, focusing on the issues that really matter in the 21st century, like Perth Toll. Perth is the founder of Life and Liberty Indexes and the creator of the Freedom 100 EM Index, the world's first freedom-weighted emerging markets equity index strategy. She's all over financial media and the conference circuit, where I've had the pleasure of listening to her speak and to get to know her, and she is our special guest this week on The Green Investor. Welcome, Perth. Thanks for having me, Caleb. I'm so glad you joined us. You're so passionate about the relationship between freedom and capital markets, something a lot of investors may take for granted. What brought you to this place and what have you discovered on your journey? 
Yeah. So I grew up in both China and the US and moved back and forth between the countries throughout my childhood. After college, I went and lived in Hong Kong. And while I was there, I traveled to the mainland and to you know cities like Beijing and Shanghai. And that's where I realized that my life would have been very different had I stayed in China as a child. And freedom is what made that difference. And so I started exploring the relationship between freedom and markets as well. Yeah. And you were an advisor with Fidelity at an earlier point in your career. What made you want to transition to create your own shop? Was you just not able to exercise that belief in that type of an environment? Yeah. So at Fidelity, I was a financial advisor in the LA and Houston markets. And this was after I came back from Hong Kong. And I did have clients, for example, a Russian client that said, I don't want to invest in Russia because it would be like funding terrorism. I had clients from other countries, like in the Middle East, say the same thing to me. And I felt the same way about China. And emerging markets, funds, and indexes at the time were very, and they still are very autocracy heavy and had a lot of these autocratic countries in it just because of the nature of the emerging markets universe. So I realized that a product like this should exist and needed to exist. And no, I would not have been able to do this at Fidelity because it would have been like an outside business activity that probably wouldn't have been approved. I left Fidelity though, because I wanted to stay home with my young child at the time. And then a few years after I left Fidelity and in between that time worked for another ETF firm, then I decided to go out on my own and, and start this because it's still an idea that I just felt like the market was ready for. You created your own indexes and ETFs. And folks, you have no idea how hard this is, even for large institutions with billions of dollars in assets and huge legal teams. But you did it with your small firm. Why did you choose to create your own? And then I wanted to get into the process a little bit of how you did it and how you maintain it. But this is no small deal. Thanks, Caleb. Yeah. And actually, the index is the easier of the two parts, the index and ETF. So we did both. And, and the index, you know, it's fairly easy. You just have somebody calculate it. I mean, I created the rule book, the methodology that basically turns the freedom scores into weights. So we use freedom scores from third-party think tanks that are independent, like the Cato Institute and the Fraser Institute. And we turn those scores into freedom weights and the countries are 100% freedom weighted instead of market cap weighted, which takes care of that autocracy concentration problem. The higher freedom countries get a higher weight, the lower freedom countries get a lower weight and the worst offenders are excluded altogether from the index. And my initial plan was to license this index to issuers like iShares or Vanguard, but nobody wanted it when I had shopped it around. And so that's why we had to basically sponsor our own ETF. And that was actually the much harder part. Yeah. Sponsoring your own ETF, marketing it, raising the money, going through all the SEC rigmarole, that's a very big deal. And I know a lot of folks out there that do this for firms like yours, but- how long did it take and how much did it cost to really get it off the ground and get it out to the public? Yeah. So the index in its current iteration was incepted in 2017 and the ETF in 2019. So it took about two years between the index inception to the time that we had an ETF. And during those two years, the first year I shopped around, talked to basically every ETF issuer in the United States. And then decided, okay, we obviously have to do this on our own because nobody wants to license the index. And that's when I started to raise money for our firm for the operation cost of an ETF. It does cost about $250,000 a year. Emerging markets products are a little more because there's the custody costs of giving our investors access to local shares in each of these markets. And we're very proud to pay that on behalf of our investors. So emerging markets products do cost a little more as a result. 
but I don't know of any other structure that is as beneficial for clients as an ETF tax-wise. So that was something that I was very willing to do is continue to go down the road of making an ETF. So you're saying a lot of the issuers didn't want it necessarily. And on the indexes, a lot of the institutions didn't want it, but you knew that individual investors wanted this type of thing. You were passionate about it, but you knew their folks out there wanted it. So you had to do it your way. Looks like you were proven right. You got over $200 million in assets under management in the ETF right now, I believe. And it seems to be growing every year. So congratulations on that. Again, folks, not easy at all to do this. Let's get into some of the methodology. You say you provide a differentiated emerging markets equity exposure by using quantitative personal and economic freedom metrics. You talked about those. You get some of those from the Cato Institute. But a lot of people may wonder, how do you quantify something like freedom? You actually have metrics to do this. So let's dig into a few of those metrics. Yeah. So these guys actually use 79 different metrics for personal and economic freedoms. They're the only ones that I know of that encompasses both personal and economic freedoms. And we think that's important to have. So personal freedoms, I categorize into civil and political freedoms. Civil freedoms are things like terrorism, torture, trafficking, internal organized conflict, or causing wars in other places. Women's freedoms are a part of this as well. There are five proxies for women's freedoms, and things like women's rights to inheritance, women's rights to a movement, women's rights to children after a divorce, and things like that. And then political freedoms are things like freedom of speech, media expression, assembly, and so forth. And then the economic freedoms are things we're all familiar with, like business regulations, rule of law, taxation, private property rights, soundness of monetary policy, freedom to trade internationally, and so forth. So all of these things added together gives me a composite score from these think tanks. And I use that composite score that encompasses all 79 variables. I use those as inputs into the algorithm that gives us the country weights. So then you get your country weights. I see some of the countries at the top of the list, Chile, Taiwan, South Korea, Poland, all of these countries, I assume, score relatively well, right? You're comparing one country to the other against the rest of the world. You don't see a lot of other Asian countries in there, particularly China. So when you're looking at these things, you want the countries that score best, and then you're finding the companies within these countries that are outperformers. Do the companies also go through a similar type of screening? Or is it once your country is in, then you can find the companies you want to invest in? Yeah. So it is a top-down approach. And the freedom screening is and the freedom weighting is done on the country level. It is 100% freedom weighted, not a tilt or an overlay. So that's important. And then, and then on the security level, what we do is we just want to get a good representation of those markets in a very tradable way. So we just take the 10 largest, most liquid securities in each of those markets that are not state-owned enterprises and state-owned defined as 20% or more government ownership. So that's really just to bring the economic freedom theme all the way through. So in each of the markets, we'll have 10 securities. And right now there's 11 countries. So there's 110 securities in the fund at the moment. Let's talk a little bit about state-owned enterprises because you know you say it in your investing material, they just don't run that efficiently like private companies do. What have you noticed in your research and as you've been putting together these indexes and ETFs that, that strikes you as, as so interesting about this? Yeah. So you mentioned we don't have any China in the index. We also don't have any Russia Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Egypt, and so forth. So the freedom weighting methodology naturally excludes the worst autocracies. And one of the things about these types of countries that is a tail risk for investors and why we don't want any exposure to them is that there's typically in these countries, companies have to put state interests above their own, above shareholders and above even their customers' interests. You know, for example, Tencent 
operates an app called WeChat. And there was a time when the Chinese government used WeChat to you know, find Uyghurs and other dissidents. So when the state asks for that data from Tencent, you know, they're going to have to hand it over. So this is just one example. And then you know, there's a recent example in, in Egypt of expropriation where the biggest dairy company in Egypt, the government wanted to take it over. The founder said no and got thrown in prison. His son said no, also gone third in prison. So these are things that happen in the less free markets where the government has an outsized role in private market activity. And there's a cost to doing business that way. And when we invest in these companies in these countries, we are subsidizing their cost of doing business that way of putting the state interest before all other stakeholders. So that's another reason why we exclude state-owned enterprises is that those are the companies where the state has even more control. Even in the freer countries, we don't want that state influence on business activity in private businesses. So we find that they're less efficient when they're they're run that way. And also we don't want to subsidize the cost of doing business in that manner. There's the ethical reason. And then there is the investment reason. In terms of performance though, as you've been investing and tracking countries and companies that make it into your criteria, how's performance when you look at it compared to something like the global MSCI or the S&P 500 over the past three or four years? Yeah, we are strongly outperforming those benchmarks over the life of the fund. And I think one reason for that, I actually didn't expect the thesis to play out this well this soon. And I think one reason for that is because we've had some extreme events. We've had COVID, we've had the China crash, we've had Russia's invasion, and thereafter all their stocks going to zero. So we didn't have exposure to any of that going through this period of time. And that has helped us extremely. Now, I don't think that that is something that we can expect every year, but I do expect that in the long run, freer countries will outperform because they do have more sustainable growth. They recover faster from drawdowns. And we saw that in the recovery from COVID. And they, they use their capital more efficiently, both human and economic capital. So capital, you know, as Walter Riston said, is not just money. It's also people and ideas. And capital goes where it's most welcome and where it's well-treated. So we think that the freer markets have an easier time attracting and retaining capital and experience less capital flight and capital destruction. So we do expect the outperformance to uh, continue in the long run, though in the short term, no one knows what would happen. Yeah, no one knows it's going to happen tomorrow in the stock market anyway, and we're in a particularly volatile time now. You also say that freedoms are interconnected. You're talking about civil freedoms, political freedoms, and economic freedoms. They work together and they should be measured as a composite. You're able to actually put all these together and look at them through that prism. A lot of folks may think that you need to separate them, but why do you think they need to be looked at together? Yeah. So the reason why we look at all the freedoms together is that our data providers believe, and I agree, that freedoms are like the parts of an automobile, that you can't have a steering wheel without a transmission. The car still won't run. So you know we've heard it said that economic freedom precedes. It's a necessary, but not a precondition for human freedom for personal freedom. And we've seen that to be the case in a lot of these countries that, you know, they'll open up economically that that economic freedom increase won't be followed up by human freedom increases. And then they reach a plateau. And and now we're seeing that in some of the biggest emerging markets like China. So, you know, and it becomes a growth story of the past. So really both freedoms need to work together. If you, if you don't have economic freedom, if the government is doling out all the jobs, and we have a situation like the Arab Spring where 
people aren't free to provide for their families and and work and you know make money, then you don't have really freedom, even if even if you have personal freedom. So if you don't have personal freedom, but you have economic freedom, then you end up with something like China had in, in the past few decades. And you know, if you look at China as exhibit A here, the MCHI index, which is the China onshore and offshore shares, has returned in the past since 1992, the inception of the index, so the past 30 or 40 years, has returned less than treasuries. So in a time when China experienced extreme growth, and that was very real growth, where they went from abysmal economic policies under Mao to not so bad policies. And this incremental improvement in economic freedom helped them tremendously. And people lifted themselves up out of poverty. And it was a very exciting time. But during that time of growth, investors were only able to capture less than treasury-like returns. So that's pretty abysmal. And that comes from, in an unfree market, a lot of dilution, a lot of expropriation, and in China, you know, the ownership structures are opaque. Accounting structures are very opaque as well. So without that transparency, without that rule of law and private property rights, including shareholder rights, it's very difficult for investors to capture growth. So that's why we try to stay away from these markets where investors, even if there is growth, have difficulty capturing it. Perth, you know this well, but we're entering a time where we're in a time of intense polarization polarization of political ideals across the world, the rise of the ultra-right, the rise of the ultra-left, individual freedoms are going to get squeezed in the middle of this polarization that's already happening. How's that going to impact the investing landscape for you and the people who want to follow you into this theme? Yeah. So I think the more polarized the world gets, the more alpha there is to be had in a freedom-weighted strategy. There's going to be a lot of bifurcation between the free world and the less free world. And, and you see that happening now, even in developed markets. You know, we started this in the emerging market space because of that divergence in freedom levels that exists in emerging markets. Um, you know, developed markets historically has been pretty homogenous as far as freedom levels. They're all pretty free, relatively speaking. You know, there is no 100% free market or and there's no 100% unfree market. So even in the US here, we're not 100% free. And we're just one of the least worst, right? So we started this in emerging markets because we found the most value there in doing a freedom-weighted strategy. Now, as the world bifurcates, we expect that maybe even in developed markets, there would be value to be had in a strategy like this. What hotspots are you and your team watching now that could become a much bigger deal later this year or even into 2023? So we're watching the countries that are benefiting from a lot of human migration due to these kind of current events. So for example, Poland is benefiting from the human migration from Ukraine. Colombia has been in the past several years benefiting from migration from Venezuela, although Colombia is running into some, some major issues now. And these are the countries that we would expect to see increases in their scores. Now, there are also countries that we're watching that are currently very high uh, in our index, like Chile. Now, Chile is, is top holding right now because of its market movement, not because of its freedom score. So because it's the only kind of well-performing emerging market this year, because of the commodities exposure that they have in all of their industries. So we're watching Chile closely because of the political movements happening there. 
And I actually do, unfortunately, expect a drop in their score in coming years. So that's something that, that we're watching as well. So the economic freedom in Chile, the human migration in some of these other markets. We also like markets like Taiwan that are the beacon of freedom in their regions. You could say the same about Colombia and, and Poland right now as well. But Taiwan especially currently is, is under fire as always. You know, that's just a way of life in Taiwan and could be the epicenter <laughs> of this bifurcation going forward. So um, one thing I would tell investors as well when I talk about Taiwan is that people ask, well, what if Taiwan gets invaded by China? Like, are you concerned about that? And I would say that if you're an investor and you're concerned about something like that happening, I would be a little more concerned about having 30% China exposure in your market cap weighted emerging markets funds. Because as we saw from Russia and Ukraine, Russia is the market that got hit with sanctions instantly, worldwide sanctions, as soon as they invaded Ukraine. And everybody is watching China and Taiwan next and seeing what's going to happen. I do believe that China was deterred by the actions against Russia. And I think that they will continue to be a little bit deterred. But if we're concerned about that, I would be more concerned about the China exposure. Who are your influences, Perth? Who sort of helped guide the way or who do you look out to in the industry who you've tried to model some of your career and your practices after? So one of my biggest influences is Rob Arnott of Research Affiliates, who is actually an LP in our firm and the first investor in our funds as well. And I've told that story you know, often. And he basically pioneered non-cap weighted indexing. So really, he's one of the reasons why we're all here in the ETF space is that we're all variations on cap weight. And so he kind of pioneered that. He didn't invent it, but he popularized it with the RAFI indices. So I think that was one of my early inspirations. As far as freedom weight, I mean, one of my inspirations is just the freedom fighters around the world. I mean, especially in Hong Kong, because I spent time there and it's a place that's dear to my heart. And those guys gave their lives and futures to take a stand for freedom. Right now, there's Russian activists that have given their freedom to, to stand up for the freedom of their, their brethren in Russia and in Ukraine. And so I think these guys are my true inspirations. And you know, we're doing what we can in the indexing world to help investors have a way of expressing their preferences for freedom you know, in these markets that didn't exist before. And so that's why we're here. But, you know, freedom has a lot of benefits that are very nebulous. Like it has, you know, freer countries have higher life expectancy, lower infant mortality, higher gender equality, lower poverty rates, higher per capita GDP and higher, you know, income. And the, even in the, the lowest income levels in the freer countries are much better off than the lowest income levels in the the less free countries. So all of these things are, are the benefits of freedom that are very difficult to kind of visualize. And we're, we're here to try to be a running scorecard for freedom in the emerging market space. Well, you're definitely a trailblazer in your own right. And a lot of people will probably say in a short order that you were their inspiration. Pertol, the founder of the Life and Liberty Indexes and the creator of the Freedom 100 EM Index. So good to have you on The Green Investor. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's time for Green Facts, that part of the show where we dig into interesting facts, figures, and financial products in green investing that are worth paying attention to. This week, we're focusing on the anti-ESG movement that is gaining traction in Europe and in the U.S. as regulators are cracking down on the so-called greenwashing of companies, 
funds and ETFs that claim to represent ESG or SRI, that's socially responsible investing, but might not be living up to their promises. Well, there's a new exchange-traded fund coming to the market in the U.S. that takes clear aim at the ESG movement, particularly the S and the G themes, social and governance. It's called the God Bless America ETF with a ticker symbol YAL, Y-A-L-L. This exchange-traded fund, advised by Tarasso Investments, will seek to invest in U.S.-listed companies with a track record of creating American jobs, but it will actively screen out firms that have emphasized political activism and social agendas at the expense of maximizing shareholder return. The ETF will hold 30 to 40 companies, but it has yet to list those stocks or its expense ratio. We're going to keep a close eye on y'all, y'all, and keep in mind that principles-based ETFs don't have a great track record of drawing a lot of capital. We'll see if this one can buck the trend while taking the other side of activist ETF investing. It's time to unpack the acronym, that part of the show where we try to deconstruct the alphabet soup that is green investing. And this week's acronym is PET, P-E-T, otherwise known as Recycled Polyethylene Terephthalate. That's a fancy name for recycled plastic bottles, and it has become a pretty hot commodity as companies try to make their goods and packaging more sustainable. Prices for PET have risen 35% so far this year, and demand looks strong for the foreseeable future. Some of the largest producers of PET include Playcon, Clearpath Recycling, Indorama Ventures, Loop Industries, and Evergreen. The market for PET is around $9.25 billion, according to Emergent Research, but it's expected to grow at a 6.8% compound annual growth rate through the year 2030. About 22% of the market is in North America, but it's growing throughout the Asia-Pacific region, especially in countries like Vietnam, Thailand, India, and South Korea, as new laws are being passed requiring the use of PET for consumer packaged goods. We'll go out this week as we always do, celebrating this week in environmental history. But we're going to be gazing upward to the moon as we commemorate the anniversary of Neil Armstrong's moonwalk. On July 16, 1969, the Apollo 11 NASA aircraft took off from Kennedy Space Center with astronauts Neil Armstrong, Edwin Aldrin Jr., and Michael Collins aboard. Armstrong, a 38-year-old research pilot, was the commander of the mission. After traveling 240,000 miles in 76 hours, Apollo 11 entered into a lunar orbit on July 19th. The next day at 1.46 p.m., the Lunar Module Eagle, manned by Armstrong and Aldrin, separated from the command module where Collins remained. Two hours later, the Eagle began its descent to the lunar surface, and at 4.18 p.m., the craft touched down on the southwestern edge of the Sea of Tranquility. Armstrong immediately radioed to Mission Control in Houston, Texas, saying the famous message, the Eagle has landed. At 10.39 p.m., Armstrong opened the hatch of the lunar module and made his way down the module's ladder with a television camera attached to the craft, beaming a signal back to Earth where hundreds of millions of people watched in great anticipation. At 10.56 p.m., Armstrong spoke this famous quote. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. While the moon landing was not necessarily a step forward for the environmental movement, it's important to remember that President John F. Kennedy made space exploration and the moon landing a priority for the country, and he pushed Congress to support the country's efforts in space travel. It didn't require an executive order, per se, but it was an example of how this country was able to achieve the unimaginable by marshalling its forces and its funds to land and walk on the moon. Special thanks to Perth Toll for joining us this week on The Green Investor and to all of you for tuning in. We'll post a transcript to our conversation, links to her Life and Liberty indexes, and to all the reports we cited on the show in the show notes wherever you listen to this podcast, and of course on investopedia.com slash The Green Investor Podcast. Rate, review, and recommend The Green Investor to your friends if you like what you've been hearing, and send us feedback to podcasts at investopedia.com. 
www.thegreenbrigade.com. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new show. And until then, keep it green. Green.